Hey, Brown Girls, before we start, I want to tell you about a Radiotopia show, The Stoop. It's an award-winning podcast hosted by journalists Leela Day and Hana Baba that tells stories from across the Black diaspora. Leela's African-American, Hana's Sudanese-American, and they get personal about what it means to be Black today. They're in their eighth season, and together they explore Black life through intimate conversations and reporting that dig deep into the lived realities of being Black. The joyful, the painful, and everything in between. It's personal, it's communal, it's where you let your guard down and just get real. Join Leela Hanna on The Stoop from Radiotopia. Hey, Brown Girls, it's Ashanti, host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. This season has been all about the midterms. We've been talking about making change at the polls, on the campaign trail, and on the ground. But there's one battleground for change we haven't discussed yet. And boy, do we need to. This episode, class is in session because we're going back to school. The classroom is ground zero for education, but it's also the first place we learn about ourselves. Growing up, so many black and brown kids are learning not just about math and science, but about racism, microaggressions, and the world through the biases kids and teachers bring into the classroom. That's why I'm so excited to speak to Dr. Erica Buchanan Rivera, Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer for Washington Township in Indiana and author of the new book, Identity Affirming Classrooms. From book banning to CRT to our own experiences in classrooms, we are bringing it all to the table. Dr. Buchanan Rivera will talk about the work she's done in creating identity-affirming spaces for children and how to create a movement of equity-focused educators. But first, I wanted to touch base with someone who isn't an educator or a student, but who is close to the topic, BGG producer Brittany Martinez. Hey, Brittany. Hi, Ashanti. So can you tell listeners why you're our voice of reason on this education episode? The topic of education was one that I was really excited to feature this season. You may not know this, but my younger brother is currently in eighth grade in the New York City public school system. And his entire middle school experience has been a challenge. He graduated from fifth grade during the pandemic. His entire first year of middle school was online, and he's now in-person schooling again. But it's still hard for these middle school students to feel that connection and that community because his entire time was pretty much at home. My younger brother also has special needs. He handled this entire pandemic schooling situation with autism. Most public schools don't have the services required to help special needs students. So Ashanti, what are your thoughts on the disparities of public school funding? Sending love to you and your family is just overall very upsetting because I had to deal with these disparities as a young Black girl in the Clark County School District in Las Vegas. During the 2020 presidential debates, there was this big back and forth about school busing with people saying, oh, that is such a thing of the past. But I was actually 
bus to the other side of town when I was in grade school. So it really wasn't that long ago. And it had to do with the disparities of public school funding. The schools in my neighborhood were not getting the tools or resources that they needed. And even back then, it was very hard to find people who wanted to be teachers and educators because they weren't even getting what they needed. So really what we need is a serious investment in education. We continue to find all of this money for wars, to fight other things, but the basic education of our kids continues to be overlooked. So if we really want to have productive members of society, we have to do the investments in our public education system. Not everyone is able to afford to send their kids to a private school. And something that comes up too is so many people will just say, well, like, why do I care? Why do I care? Well, if you use hospitals, any sort of public utility, you're going to need people to work those institutions. You're going to want to have great doctors. And it's really upon all of us to build up the next generation. And that really starts with having better funding in our public schools. For sure. And my older brother and I ended up going to private school, but we did our time in the New York City public school system. And it's unfortunate things haven't really changed much. So outside of like the funding, the big dog whistle issue this election cycle has been CRTs and the anti-gay education agenda. I am actively involved in my younger brother's homework. So I can tell you schools are not trying to indoctrinate children to hate white people. They are trying to teach children to be more accepting of others, which is what we want as a society. People shouldn't be up in arms about seeing diverse names in math textbooks. John and Jane aren't the only kids collecting apples. We have Miguel's. We have Julian's. Like, it's okay to see a different name. When it comes to history books, I want my younger brother to understand the extra context as he gets older. So what are your thoughts about the conservatives politicizing education? This continues to be so wild for me because at the end of the day, what is being taught in school, what is in a lot of these books that they want to ban is United States history. It is world history. And if you're not teaching that to kids of all races, of all ages, you are not creating productive members of society. This whole debate is just really rooted in white supremacy and what white people feel should be in schools, what students need to know. And the reality is this is even happening in a lot of school districts where the majority of the students are black and brown, but you have school boards that are majority white. So I'm sure the listeners are surprised. I'm going to talk about why we need people running for office and why we need so many better people in these positions. But it really starts with the school board who is able to push back and say, no, this is reasonable. We need to have well-rounded students who are accepting. And one of the things that really throws me off is parents who will say, well, I don't want my kids to learn about slavery because that's just going to teach them that white people were bad. Well, there were also white abolitionists. Why aren't you telling your white child to be like the white abolitionists who wanted to see slavery gone? In every instance in history, 
there are people who are on the wrong side and who are on the right side. And I don't understand why white parents in particular can't just tell their kids, learn about the people who are on the right side. Be like those people. Those are the people that you want to be like. They really just want to focus on not having the discussion at all. And that is not fruitful in any way. When we look at the young population, more and more of them are identifying as members of the LGBT community, especially as non-binary. These are things we need to be teaching our children from a very young age to be accepting of all people, not only with their skin tone, but how they identify. And I don't see a problem with us having those discussions in the classroom because it's going to make it better for them when they're out in the real world and have to interact with different people in the workplace, in public. These are just things that we need. For sure. And hopefully we'll start seeing some change. Thanks so much for chatting, Brittany. Thanks, Ashanti. You can hear more about curriculums and education in my conversation with Dr. Erica Buchanan-Rivera. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Dr. Buchanan, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing well. And yourself? Doing well, doing well. Very close to election day, so super busy. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today for our education episode. Thank you. I'm excited and thrilled to be here. Let's start with your personal history. What does your education history look like and how did that inform your involvement in inclusion work in education? I have served in education for nearly 16 years as a teacher, principal of an award-winning international magnet school, a curriculum director over grades K through 12, an adjunct professor. And over the last few years, I have been positioned as a DEI practitioner. Thus, I'm currently a director of equity inclusion in a local school district. Thank you for all your work. And you are also now the parent to a young learner. I have nieces and nephews who are young. What kinds of conversations are you having with your child about diversity and inclusion in the classroom? I have a kindergartner, so we are having more entry-level conversations to diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's important for my child to understand who is in her community, to understand differences and how we value differences as a family. We talk about the importance of advocacy, to speak up for your needs, and to speak up for others, thinking about what it looks like to be an ally as well as an advocate. Kids are not too young to have these critical conversations about race and humanity. School environments provide social contexts where students are learning not only about themselves, but they're learning about the world around them through their interactions with others. Kids experience injustices within school environments. And therefore, it's important to have a space for students to grapple with their lived experiences. And when I got older and started to think back to grade school, especially, there were so many interactions and instances with teachers that were actually discriminatory and racist. And at that young age, you're just like, oh, they don't like me. You really don't understand. But now I'm like, oh, that was really full of hatred and racism. So we know it absolutely happens. 
And there's been lots of conversations that have started to surface about the school to prison pipeline starting for young black and brown kids in kindergarten, kids getting expelled from preschool for being kids. That is the premise of why I wrote my book, Identity Affirming Classrooms. You know, I published this book due to the racial trauma I experienced within K-12. School is not a place where I felt inclusivity, but rather invisibility. I attended a predominantly white private Lutheran school as a student. No administrator or educator reflected my racial identity. My teachers have good intentions, but good intentions alone do not automatically equate to a positive impact, nor do good intentions yield to a culturally responsive environment. School is where I learned about erasure and racism. School is where I learned about microaggressions and dehumanizing language. School is where I struggled to be my most authentic self. And it was also a place where I learned, to your point, to distrust many adults who were responsible for my care due to their biases and their racist ideologies making their way into the classroom environment. Therefore, as an educational leader, my passion for creating identity-affirming spaces comes from the freedom dream of providing each child a community of care where there is connectivity, accountability, responsivity, as well as empathy. It's a space where students can be their authentic selves and operate in an environment with equity-focused educators who are constantly thinking about how they show up within classroom environments. They're aware of the conditions for learning that allow students particularly students of color who have been historically marginalized by educational systems to thrive and to tap into their genius. And can we dive into a little bit more about what you talk about as mirror work? I found this just really fascinating. So can you explain mirror work for our listeners and how using it could introduce a new way of thinking about issues in the classroom? I believe that an identity affirming classroom is not a declaration of words but a declaration of actions that are rooted in anti-bias as well as anti-racist work. And so educators have to be immersed in the practice of dismantling forms of oppression that may exist in policies, curriculum, programs, interpersonal relationships, as well as learning partnerships with parents or caregivers. Therefore, I'm clear that no tool alone can create an affirming space without the involvement of mere work. Anyone who works with children need to understand their own ideologies, their beliefs about humanity, and how those beliefs may materialize into the classroom environment and in the decisions that influence the outcomes of youth. As adults, we have to reflect on the ways we were conditioned to see people. We have to reflect on our upbringing and our social construction. How have we been shaped to understand another person's humanity? And if we don't do that work, some of the most effective resources and research-based strategies can become a weapon if we bring toxic ideologies into that work. If educators don't engage in that process, the biases and ideologies they possess in the world will find their way into instructional practices. Within the book, I shared a story about my sixth grade teacher and how her racial biases were evident within the classroom. She was mortified to say the quiet parts out loud. And meanwhile, I was devastated and felt violated for simply existing in my skin. And so part of mirror work is what Paulo Freire refers to as 
the work of building a critical consciousness. We have to understand what perpetuates as well as what sustains inequities and recognize the role of power and its impact in the creation of equal environments and accept the call to act against injustice. One's ideologies can be bookends that hold inequities or racism in place. Therefore, mere work and efforts to build a critical consciousness are necessary to create affirming spaces where we deconstruct ourselves, we think about the ideologies that we possess that may cause a psychologically unsafe space for a student, and we think about our commitment to actions to dismantle forms of oppression at the individual level, at the institutional level, to create spaces where all students can thrive. I know so many are going to relate to that sixth grade teacher that you had. We all have most likely had a teacher like that if you are a black and brown student in school. But I want to shift a little bit to talking about the home because we have tons of BGG listeners that are parents. They have children of their own. They're caregivers. What conversations do you think parents should be having with their children that can help bolster diversity and inclusion work and efforts in the classroom? I think it's important for families to have critical conversations about what is happening in the world around their children. And that includes discussions about race, justice, and humanity. For parents of color, we are forced, unfortunately, to have these discussions early with our children due to racism that they may have encountered within school settings or environments or other contexts. I experienced racism as early as first grade when I was informed that I could not sit next to white students on the school bus. And that was my first day of school. You would have thought I was talking about the 1950s and I'm actually describing the 1980s. My parents didn't want to have conversations about racism with me as a young child, but when you're the only black kid on a bus and you report to your parents that you stood the entire time on your bus route, it's going to warrant a courageous conversation about race. And as I've talked about in my book and in other publications, it's important for particularly our white families within the educational systems and within society to own these conversations in their household. As a black parent, I do not want to be in a position to constantly pick up the pieces and make my child feel whole again after each of her encounters and exposure to racist actions or behaviors. We have to talk more about the deficit ideologies some white children are adopting about humanity and race that would prompt them in their adulthood to enter a black church or to drive to a grocery store and to take the lives of black people. Those ideologies were not inherent, but they were taught. Kids are not born to hate. Yet, if the world around them conveys anti-Black, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitism, and other harmful messages that are unchecked, then they will be socially conditioned to disregard the full humanity of others. Therefore, it's important for all families to talk about how we treat people with human dignity. You don't have to agree with everything a person says, but you don't have to take part in acts of dehumanization. We can show love and kindness, gratitude. We can open our minds to new perspectives. We can think critically about the world around us, knowing that new ways of thinking enhance our human development and should not be considered as you know, the word of the year from right-wing groups known as indoctrination. You know, as 
parents, we all play a part in creating better humans who can be contributors of a just world where people have purpose and a sense of belonging. And that's on us as adults. You know, we have to do the heavy lifting for the next generation. Remember the first time I was called the N-word was in first grade Yes, by one of my white classmates. And my white teacher heard it, looked, and just didn't do anything. So that was completely just affirming his behavior that he learned at home, that it was socially acceptable outside the home, because you could say this to one of your classmates, the teacher can hear you and just absolutely do nothing. And think about what we internalize to as children when we watch adults and witness their inaction to racist actions. There's much to internalize there. You think about your self-worth, you wonder about your own sense of mattering, your existence. You know, the children are always watching. And so as adults, we have the responsibility and the obligation to act to say something in the moment when we see harm within an environment. I want to talk a little bit about the term that we're hearing all over the place, critical race theory. (laughs) It gets thrown around a lot in educational debates, but I'm also curious to hear from you this framing that happens. And I hear it all the time, especially in the news when they're asking interviewers about this, They'll say parents, they don't want their kids learning about critical race theory, black and brown parents, they think it's important. And that makes my blood boil because it automatically frames white parents as the default and black and brown parents as the other. Critical race theory is certainly the boogeyman of our times, unfortunately. I even thought about dressing up as critical race theory for Halloween because it's so scary these days. (laughs) Just going door to door. You know, as a DEI practitioner, I have many thoughts when it comes to critical race theory and the notion that having conversations about race causes psychological distress. Because to your point, we have to ask whose voices are we centering? when we are stating that conversations about race causes distress. And honestly, we're centering white children. We're not centering the voices and the experiences of students of color. Within the state of Indiana, we were able to defeat House Bill 1134, which did have components that would have prohibited conversations about race within the instructional environment and also professional development for teachers to understand racial equity work because of the anguish, guilt, or discomfort those conversations could cause. And that word distress was so triggering to me because the things that were distressing to me as a Black educator were aspects legislators pushing for anti-CRT laws didn't want to acknowledge. Distress is knowing that at that time of the legislation, only 8% of Black students passed both language arts and math on our standardized assessments. The stress was knowing that our Hispanic students only passed language arts and math at a rate of 15%. The stress is seeing the lack of Black and Brown representation in high ability as well as AP and honors courses. 
the stresses having to experience racism and microaggression in a school environment that impacts your mental health and performance. The stress is also knowing that black and brown voices were not included in the development of a bill that was striving to eliminate educational opportunities necessary to change the outcomes for black and brown children within the state of Indiana. Those things are distressing. Experiencing racism is distressing. Having conversations about race and efforts to help our youth to become better versions of themselves and better humans is not distressing. And so those talking points were very triggering for me you know, as a Black educator. I love that you said it, talking points. That's exactly what they are. Within the United States, there has been a long withstanding history of racism and government sanctioned injustice, including but not limited to the colonization of indigenous tribes who were subjected to harm and abuse, building American schools off of stolen indigenous lands, enslavement, oppressive structures within immigration and Jim Crow laws, redlining, and the integration of black and brown children following Brown versus Board in predominantly white spaces where cultural responsive teaching was non-existent. Government sanctioned injustice has always existed. And the anti-CRT movement, in my opinion, is just another fresh coat of paint on the house known as the United States that has historically rested on a foundation of systemic racism. You just told no lies, no lies at all. I want to switch over to a different topic of discrimination that our children are facing. In March of this year, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the bill often referred to as Don't Say Gay. Can you tell us what are some of your concerns around this kind of legislation? Because we know that we're going to see the copycat bills across the country regarding it. And what implications do you think that it has for parents and their children, and especially those who would want to file lawsuits, you know, to protect their children against this form of discrimination? I say file away. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To start with. It's dehumanizing. You are not acknowledging the full humanity of students. We're talking about children and their livelihoods. If you study gender identity specifically and you look at these statistics that exist, particularly for students within the LGBT plus community, we see high suicidation rates. We know students encounter mental health issues, particularly due to the discrimination that is experienced within school contexts. And to deliberately put a law in place where you refuse to acknowledge the existence, the history and the identity of students is unfathomable. It's harmful. You know, no student should feel a race within an educational environment. And that's essentially what is happening through this government sanction. Oh, it's despicable. And to add on to this, they're banning books. (laughs) I got to get your thoughts on all the books that they're banning, because I just know me, if this was happening when I was in middle school, high school, all it's going to make me do is want to go and read those books. Because I'm like, what you trying to hide? What's in there? I would be the same way. I do not understand the movement of banning one's freedom to read. That's essentially what we're talking about. The freedom to read books. I love what you just said. I've never heard it framed in that way. That is exactly what it is. And it's interesting. You know, I, in fact, I was working in 
a classroom not too long ago as a fifth grade covering a book banning unit. They had invited students to research books that were being banned in our social political climate and to investigate the reasons why and to hear this interactive dialogue where even the students were perplexed as to why some of the books were eliminated just speaks to how our youth are so much better than adults. <laughs> they can see right through the injustices and the inequities and they want to be a part of efforts to make our world more humane and compassionate. But I just think we're in an era of truth decay right now, where we have so many people who are trying to just erase truths, whether those truths are rooted in historical contexts, someone's existence, and it's shameful you know, that we are trying to take away a student's right to read things that make them feel real and authentic. From fake news to truth decay, Dr. Buchanan, we are so lucky to have you in the classroom, in the education field, fighting back against so many of these discriminatory policies. We know that there's still so much work that still needs to be done when it comes to creating inclusive and safe classroom environments. But for our BGG fam out there that are listening today, who are parents, caregivers, educators, what is the one thing that you hope they will take away from this conversation? I hope parents and caregivers and listeners will hone in on the importance of mirror work. We have to think about how we view each other's humanity and truly think about our intentions and how they lead to impactful actions. I think oftentimes when it comes to justice-centered work, there are many things that are done in the name of equity that don't necessarily get to the heart of equitable actions that serve historically marginalized groups and communities. And so I think we really need to do an intentional job tapping into each other's needs, actively listening to what groups need that have been historically at the margins, and having those courageous conversations with our youth where we're also modeling the talk because kids are watching. The kids are watching. Dr. Buchanan, thank you so much for your time for this amazing and enlightening conversation. We appreciate it so much. Thank you, appreciate being here. Today, we are going on the scene with Akisha McCanns, a professor for the City University of New York. She's here to tell her story of helping students of color process the trauma they experienced in traditional education. She also tells us how to make the classroom a place for healing. My name is Akisha McCanns. I am based in Philadelphia, PA, but I'm from Harlem, New York. I am an artist, a writer, director, and an educator. And I currently am a professor for the City University of New York School of Professional Studies MA in Applied Theater Program. I'm also a mother of four. And needless to say, it was a very emotional time. The kids were going through it. And they were also, because they had been in traditional schools, processing the racialized trauma that they experienced since kindergarten. The things that they didn't talk to me about and as a person who 
talk to their kids about racism and how to prepare. It wasn't enough. So homeschooling became the salve to heal some of the trauma that they experienced for them to locate it and talk about it, and also to recognize their power in education that young folks have the power to decide what their curriculum is and to inform their curriculum. So it ended up being a gift for us and also a great way to heal. You know, I think that our young folks are awake. They're figuring out how to navigate our ignorance and these systems that have been built and reaffirmed over many, many, many decades. These issues aren't new, of course, and every generation has faced its own version, but I don't believe that most of our young folks are falling for it. I believe that most of us want to be liberated together. We see each other. We recognize how beautifully complicated we are and how different we are and how much we can gain from that exposure. So the fact that young folks are now leveraging the internet, they're leveraging their communities together, they're starting to think about what they want for their future, I think it's a beautiful thing. Teachers need support. They need spaces to articulate what it is that they want to do. You know, there's not enough dreaming space in education where it's just about regurgitating information which I see as an assault on knowledge and on ingenuity. How can we be the, you know, a country of great inventors and thinkers if we're saying the same information and the same people are left out and the same people's stories are retold without their voices involved? So I say all this to say that teachers need to be trusted, but teachers need to be prepared. Teachers need to engage in coursework that talks about social emotional learning for them, that talks about decolonizing their own understanding of that subject matter that they'd like to teach. Schools should be a community space. People should be able to come here, not only to learn curriculum, but learn themselves how to be a part of a community. You know, how to respect someone? Well, if I'm not respected, how do I learn to respect? And my family is struggling and the judgment on my family means that they aren't doing enough. And that's not always true, and we know that. So, you know, school to me could be a radical place of unlearning and relearning and recoding and redesigning and reimagining. Grassroots supporters across the country are making their voices heard this election season because their voices have an impact. AdBlue's secure online fundraising platform is trusted by millions of small-dollar donors who are driving the change they want to see. At adblue.com directory, you can find and contribute directly to the groups and causes that matter most to you. So head to adblue.com directory to take action today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Please take the time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us out. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, check us out at thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. And you can find them at wondermianetwork.com. Check out our next episode, where we will talk with Melanie Campbell, the president and CEO of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. 
See you next time, brown girls. Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody is your much-needed wake-up call in a weary world. Let Danielle's fiery passion for creating a better world kickstart your day and get woke with her bevy of special guests from the world of news and politics, art, entertainment, and spirituality. Where else can you start the conversation on the latest headlines and in on the importance of rest and mindfulness? Where else can you hear a sitting member of Congress one day and a practicing yogi the next? Where else can you take in the world filtered through the powerful voice of a Black queer woman? Where else but Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody.